Pete, and uh, it's, it's so good for you to join us. My wife and I, on the 8th of January, celebrated 20 years being married, and uh, I can finally say after 20 years of marriage, I don't feel like such a fraud anymore when people ask us for marriage advice. Um, I've been a pastor for 15 years, so, you know, for the first 15 years of my, sorry, for the f- last 15 years, I feel like every time we're giving marriage advice or giving counsel to, like, new, about to marry people, I always feel like, you know, we've just barely been married for very long ourselves. Who are we to give you advice? Well, now we're 20 years, I feel a little bit more like maybe we can give some advice. Um, I was reading uh, an old couple, uh, true story, married for 65 years. Can you imagine that? 65 years married, all right? And people asked them, what is the secret of your marriage? 65 years. And the wife said this. She said, we are from a time where if something is broken... We fix it. We don't throw it away. And that's all she said. If we are from a time, she said, where if something is broken, we fix it. We don't throw it away. I think that has a lot to say to our generation, doesn't it? It's very hard to actually fix a lot of things nowadays, not just because we can't do it ourselves, but really the whole market is geared towards buying new stuff all the time, right? So if, if, Chances are, if your electronic thing breaks, it's going to be more expensive to fix it often than to get a new one. If you have a t-shirt, right, unless it's a brand name t-shirt, if it has a hole in it, honestly, just go and buy a new one. It's so cheap nowadays. It's geared towards not fixing things, getting new things. But it's a problem, isn't it, when we take that mentality and we transfer it into non-tangible things. So you don't like the course you're studying at uni. Don't try and bear through it. Just get a new course. Change courses. How many of you have done like multiple? I won't ask. (laughs) You don't like the job you're at. All right, don't bear through it. Just get a new job. The whole job market is geared towards people chopping and changing. And here's the thing. If you don't like the relationship you're in, whether it's a romantic relationship like marriage or a friendship or a group of people like a community, if you don't like it, don't try and fix it. Find a new one. You can see why our marriages are in so much more trouble than this lady of 65 years who said, no, we fix things. We don't throw it away. Because there are some things, aren't there, that are so precious that you have to keep fixing. It's irreplaceable. Let me show you a picture of a giraffe. I won't name which child for whom, one of my kids, I've got four kids, for whom giraffe is very, very special. But as you can see, giraffe has seen better days. Right, giraffe is not really that plump anymore. It's, all the stuffing's not really there or it's kind of shriveled. And the other day, I can show you, the giraffe's ear came off. Now, we're not going to just throw away giraffe and get a new giraffe because this giraffe is very precious to one of our children. So what my wife did, Karen did, was she actually had to sew back the ear and that's not the first time it's happened. There are some things so precious that are irreplaceable. You don't throw it away and get a new one. You need to fix it. And I want to tell you that church community is that precious. Do you realize that? Not just because, you know, I'm a pastor and this is a church. And, no, it has nothing to do with me ultimately. It's because the one who formed it, Jesus, paid for it by his own blood. You know the value of something, don't you? With the price you pay for it. Church community, the body of Christ, cost Jesus, the Son of God, his life. That's how precious it is. Now, as I said last week during communion, that church community... We should expect it to be broken because God created a church not for a museum of saints, but for a hospital of sinners. We are all broken people and that's why we come to him through Jesus. 
But we're also broken as we continue to be in community with each other. So you should expect that this brokenness in the church community continues to be. We should expect that in this precious thing called church, we're going to hurt each other. Now, here's the question. What do we do when brokenness hurts each other? Do we just think it's too hard? Let's not fix it. Let's find a new one. Or... We're hoping that God's word in these next three weeks, or last week was the first week, this week and next week, will show us that actually it's precious enough that we stick with it and ask God to help us fix it. And that's what we're doing last week. Pastor Marshall preached on loving one another as God loves us. This week we're looking at the heart aspect. Last week was head, this week heart. We're going to look at forgiveness. Right? What has got to be in our heart attitude towards each other when things get broken among us? And then next week is really a way to tie it all up because in community, as we get into conflict situations, we also need practical steps, right? You have a problem with someone, what are the practical steps you need to take? That'll be next week. But this week, we're going to focus on the heart. It's going to be a little bit different. We get Jason to come up, Jason doing to kind of play some music in the background. We're going to have response time during the sermon because we really want to get at the attitudes of our heart. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would be opening and softening each of our hearts. Do the ministry that you are there to do, which is to show us the truth and make us warm towards the truth and do the supernatural way of changing our hearts from the inside out, which is not something we can change. But today, I pray that you would do the powerful work of changing us because there is going to be brokenness. If not already, we need your help to forgive so help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got three points. Um, they're on the inside of your bulletins. The third point is actually mistakenly listed as point 2C, all right? But that should be point three. Um, before we start, I need to uh, just kind of let you know that I'm going to talk about forgiveness within Christian relationships, all right? Uh, this parable is about forgiving a brother or a sister. Now, the stuff I'm going to say is going to be applicable outside, but I just want to focus on particularly relationships with other family members in Christ, brothers and sisters. I'm also not going to be able to deal with cases of criminal offense or abuse. Right? Again, not that some of what I say won't be applicable. It's just that when it comes to those kind of things, it's going to be a lot more complex. So I, I don't have the time to talk about that. So abuse and those kind of things some of you have gone through, right? Don't automatically think this applies in every situation to what you've gone through, Okay. 95%, however, of the interpersonal problems we have within church and at this church where you're going to experience that is the kind of stuff that, I, that will be included in what I talk about. In fact, it's the kind of stuff that literally rips churches apart, causes division amongst brothers and sisters. If you get our, our brother John Walsh's newsletter, you'll know that he's recently talked about a church he used to belong to where basically the church leadership is so split they came to blows. They actually hit each other, all right? This is what happens in churches. And I wonder if you're experiencing right now some hurt that someone has hurt you with or you've caused someone else hurt and it's really affected your relationship. This is 95%. And one last warning, this may be triggering for some of you. Right? There may be things that you really won't be able to, I won't be able to deal with properly or just trigger some emotions because you've been through some really hard, difficult things. And if that's you, um, you know, just kind of want to say, um, thank you for, for listening. I know it's going to be difficult. Please come and chat to your pastors a bit further afterwards because we won't be able to deal with everything in the space of the next 
uh, half an hour or so, okay? So come and talk to myself, Pastor Don, Pastor Marshall. All right, let's talk about Jesus' parable. The parable is really simple to understand. I won't go into that much detail, but you see, it starts with Peter, Jesus' disciple, asking Jesus, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister, all right, a fellow Christian? Should I forgive seven times? Seven is already a pretty big number. You think about someone you're willing to forgive seven times, but seven is also symbolic of a fairly complete number. In the Bible, seven is usually a symbol of completeness. And Jesus answers him and says, no, not seven, but 77, or another translation, 70 times seven, which would be 490. Sorry, I'm quick, aren't I? All right? But the idea, it's not, again, the literal number. It's 70 times seven, or 77 is completeness plus completeness, or completeness on top of completeness. Jesus is really saying, unlimited. Peter wants to put a limitation on it. Jesus says, no, unlimited. There are no limits to the amount of times you ought to forgive a brother or sister. And if you think that sounds outrageous, then you have experienced hurt, haven't you? The people who say, oh, that's nothing, have really never experienced being wounded. Some of the hurts I carry, I can't imagine having to forgive. I'm still working out how to forgive this once, let alone 490 times. (laughs) All right? So why? Why would Jesus ask so much? Well, he tells this parable. The parable is a very simple message. Two servants, one was shown great mercy, but then he does not carry out that mercy to a fellow servant. And the whole parable um, weighs upon the comparison of their debt. The first servant, he owes 10,000 bags of gold. Literally, it's 10,000 talents. A talent is a unit of money. How much is a talent in the ancient world? A talent is 20 years average wages for a laborer. One talent, 20 years average wage. Let's just call it $65,000 in modern terms. So one talent is 20 times that. That's $1.3 million. He owed 10,000 talents. Do the math in your head quickly. $13 billion. He owed this king $13 billion. And then he has his debt cancelled. But then a fellow servant owes him, Jesus says, 100 silver coins or 100 denarii is the uh, literal A denarius is the daily wage of a laborer. Let's just say $250. A hundred denarii is $25,000. 13 Now, please do not think $25,000 is nothing. How many of you, if someone owed you $25,000, you'd be like, whatever. I wouldn't. That's like a car, right? $25,000 is not nothing. Jesus is not saying the offenses that you carry that someone has hurt you with is nothing. He's not saying that. Of course it hurts. Of course it matters. All right? People have done you wrong. It hurts. He's not saying it's nothing. Forget it. No, no. 25,000. It's just that when you compare 25,000 to 13 billion, that's when you get it in perspective. Recently, there's been a lot of generous celebrity donations to bushfire appeal. Yeah, great. Good on them for setting the bar and setting the example. Chris Hemsworth gave $1 million. The founder, one of the founders of Atlassian, Mike Cannon-Brooks, gave a $1 million. Good on them. And not to take anything away from them, you've also got to understand that Chris Hemsworth has a net worth of $130 million and Mike Cannon-Brooks has a net worth of $8.8 billion. A million dollars is more money than most of us will ever see, but for them, it may be not that much. Because it's scale, it's comparison. 
$25,000 is a decent amount of money, a lot of money for some of us, not when you compare it with $13 billion. Jesus' message is simple. However great the sin we need to forgive one another, it just cannot compare with what God has already done for us. Our debt to God is the $13 billion. Your debt to me or mine to you is the 25000 And that's why if I'm not willing, having been forgiven $13 billion, if I'm not willing to let you, your 25000 go, then I've not really understood forgiveness, and therefore I am not forgiven. Do you see what I mean? Now, I take it that you understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've read this passage before, the head part is easy. Right? The head part is easy. But today, we're not about the head. We're about the heart. The heart part is the hard part. Unless you forgive your brother or sister, Jesus says, from the heart. Now, the heart's not just your emotions. We're not saying if you don't feel it, it's not true. No, no, no. The heart in the Bible is more than emotions. It's not less than emotions. It's more than emotions. Your heart includes your mind, your motivations, your will, your decisions, your desires, and your feelings as well. All right? Your heart is the inner you, but it's more than just your feelings. But you've got to be able to forgive, Jesus says, from the heart, from the very inside which means there's a couple of things that really need to shift in our hearts. The first one, under point 1A, is that all sin is sin against God. Now, we've got to get this point. All sin is sin against God. When King David committed adultery by killing, arranging the murder of the woman's husband, and he finally realized what he did wrong, remember he prayed this prayer in Psalm 51, And surprisingly, he says to God, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Which is surprising because he just arranged for a man to die and then took the man's wife. (laughs) You would think he kind of sinned against a couple of other people. but But, you know, he was expressing in poetry or in song that ultimately all of his sin, yes, it is against the woman and her husband, but it's ultimately all against God. Now, why is that? Why is it that when you do something against me, your sin is against God? When I do something against you, my sin is against God, that all sin is sin against God. Well, it's because we live in a universe created and governed by God. Hasn't Kenzie set that well up today for us? Which means there is a divine law above national laws, like Australia's laws. There's a divine law above that. And there is a divine law above your personal rights and wrongs. How is that so? Let me illustrate it in a couple of ways. Imagine, this is a bit Hollywood, so put up with this one. Imagine you, you're suave and good looking like Kenzie, and you use a personal relationship to manipulate a government employee to fall in love with you. Sorry, Debbie. Unless you are that government employee. No. And then, because they trust you, and fall in love with you, they share government secrets with you, but then you take that secrets and you sell it to a foreign government. That's right, it's very Hollywood, I know. Now, on one level, you've hurt and betrayed a person. But on another level, we all know you've committed treason against your government, yeah? There is a higher law that you've broken. Well, let me give you another example. It's a bit closer to home in our family, especially. I've got four kids So imagine my kids are playing games together and I give instructions that they are to play fair and they're to be good sports if they lose. 
and they are not to get into arguments. Can't tell you how many times this has happened this week, this month, holidays, I hate them. Anyway, imagine one of them cheats, and in so doing, he breaks the rules of the game, and as well causes a huge fight amongst the siblings. Now, on one level, there's a few things that have been broken, right? The rules of the game have been broken, but ultimately, I mean, sorry, even more than that, the fighting means they've hurt each other. They've damaged relationships among the siblings. But above and beyond what they've done to each other and in the game, do you see the cheater has sinned against me? Why? Because in our family, it matters how we treat each other. And I told them, you get along, don't fight. And so as a father of this family, what they did in this game and the hurt they caused and the argument they caused was ultimately a disobedience against me, you see. Now, that's an imperfect illustration, but I hope you're getting that in God's universe, in the world that he has made, which he cares so deeply about, and he has woven his order into it for our flourishing and for our joy and for his glory, in this universe, every sin, every damage, every offense is ultimately against him, the father of us all. Don't you see? Now, I reckon deep down inside, we want that. How so? Well, think about the big social issues of our day. When it comes to things like climate change or human rights or stopping the trafficking of drugs or children or women or when it comes to things like going to war, I don't we want governments to be accountable to something a little bit more binding than the United Nations or the Paris Agreement? Isn't that part of the problem? Governments just flip-flop all the time. Who polices the government? There's no greater law. It's just consensus. Well, in God's universe, consensus is not enough because there is a divine law. When it comes to interpersonal forgiveness, yes, I've sinned against you, but ultimately I've sinned against God. Yes, you may have sinned against me, but ultimately you have sinned against God. And so I wonder if we believe that ultimately, because often it's, when someone has sinned against you, all you can see is what they've done against you. But don't you see what they've done is against God ultimately? And you've done exactly the same thing, even if you haven't done the same as them. Our sin, all sin is against God. And the second point is very simple, and it gets to Jesus' parable. Our sin against God far outweighs any sin against others. It just can't even compare. It's the 13 billion, 25,000 comparison because God is pure and perfect and holy. The Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light. You might think you're clean, your shirt is white, but he is like the UV light. You walk in and suddenly all these old splotches come out. You go, oh my goodness, that's how dirty I am. That's God because he sees everything. He sees your thoughts. You know those good things you do, but you were motivated by selfish motivations? He saw that. You know the things that you are thinking that you would never say to anyone else? He sees that. And everything you have ever done, thought, he knows. So how can, you even be, how can we begin to add up how much our offense against God is? Like, you just can't add it up. And that's just quantity, by the way, isn't it? That's just talking quantitative. You can't even talk quantitatively when it comes to sin because it's also not just quantity but quality. Because we know the greater the person, the greater the offense. So if you're a kid at school and you slap another kid in the face at school... 
you're probably going to be sent to the principal's office, yeah? Well, you should. So you go and you slap the principal in the face. All of a sudden, it's escalated. They call the police and you slap the police officer in the face. And then you go to court and you slap the judge in the face. And because we live in the Queen's country, somehow you slap Queen Elizabeth in the face. I mean, but you get the point, right? The greater the person, the greater the offense. I mean, it's all a slap, but you slapping the Queen is a whole different to you slapping the kid in the playground, right? God is the creator of the universe. All sin against him is not just how many sins, it's the quality of, it's against him. So again, how can we even... All right, I'm going to get Jace up here to just to guide us through some response time. Because what I want to do is, again, this is all head stuff that really now needs to seep into our hearts. So as he plays in the background, why don't you, why don't you bow your heads? That way you're not distracted by people around you. If you like, close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that. Because what I really want us to do is really get the weight of this. Because we're not going to be able to understand how it is that God is going to ask me to forgive the hurt of someone that's against me until we've really understood that all my sin is against God. And that whatever sin against God is just not even in the same ballpark as what anyone has done for me, to me. So we need to get that. So Lord, help us. Show us the reality, the heaviness of our sin against you. Make us mourn, truly despair of our sin against you. Help us see that. But more than that, right now, I pray that you would show us Jesus who actually, because he died and rose for us, has actually canceled all of our debt, that mountain of debt, that mountain of sin, Jesus took on his place, in, in, in our place on the cross, on our behalf. And that's what I want you to think about now, that the mountain of sin, that God has taken all of that, and look what he's done with it. I'm going to show you a few verses, or just hear it if you want to just keep your eyes closed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he says in Isaiah that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you've ever felt the weight of your sin against God, if you've ever mourned how much you've hurt him, God says, I will wash them clean as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Or how about this one, Micah 7. God will again have compassion on us. He will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Sometimes I say to God, God, you know everything I've done. Why would you still love me? Why would you forgive me? And he goes, what sins? I don't remember them. Because I've removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. I've cast them into the depths of the ocean. They are never to rise again. They are gone. Never again will I count them against you. That's what God has done. You. By the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you're not sure. There may be lots of things in this sermon that won't apply to you, but this will. Today, if you say, Jesus, I trust in you, I believe in you, you died for me, you can be forgiven no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, 
God guarantees that he will take every offense, every sin, every guilt, every shame, and he will cast it into the sea because Jesus died for it already. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Or the verse that actually moved our brother Kenzie to tears last week as he led singing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, it's not that God is being unjust when he forgives your sin. He's being just because Jesus paid for it. And he says, you're free because my son already paid for it. Debt cleared, it is finished. So Father, as as we move to the next point, Father, I just pray that you would help us really appreciate in our hearts how much we've been forgiven. And on that basis, Father, as you call us to do what may seem to us to be impossible, it'll suddenly become more possible because we've understood that it's incomparable how much you've forgiven us, no matter how much someone else has hurt us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can lift up your heads. We're going to move on to the next point. I wish we had more time just on this point, but really this is the foundation for our next couple of points. There is a bit of a debate about whether when we forgive each other, it should be conditional or unconditional. Lots of people I respect fall on either side of that argument. And I'm not going to go into the argument because really both sides agree on some really important things. Okay? Whether someone needs to repent before you can forgive them, that's the conditional forgiveness view, or whether when the Bible says forgive, it doesn't have those conditions, you're supposed to forgive whether or not they do repent. That's really the argument. right? You can ask me about it later. But both, regardless of which one you take, agree on three points. Number one, they both agree that the willingness to forgive or the offer of forgiveness needs to be unconditional. Whether or not a person repents means that I should still be willing to give them forgiveness, offer them forgiveness, okay? That's not disputed. The willingness to forgive is unconditional. The second, even without repentance... Hatred, bitterness, evil thoughts, and revenge, whether you actually take of it revenge or most of the time we just imagine revenge, all of that is wrong even if they don't repent. Right? I am responsible to let go of bitterness and evil thoughts and revenge no matter what they do or don't do. That's agreed upon. And thirdly, both positions agree that reconciliation is conditional. On repentance. So, unless the other party repents, I might, on one view, I may forgive or I might offer forgiveness, but I can't reconcile unless they, okay? Both agree that reconciliation is conditional. But I want to work with the first point, and that is regardless of whether you think forgiveness is conditioned on repentance or not, the willingness to offer forgiveness needs to be unconditional, no matter what they've done or whether they repent or not. Now, that in itself is hard, isn't it, if you've really been hurt? Let me tell you that in the Bible, there are two New Testament words translated as forgive. The first word is afiemi, which is the idea of letting go, or literally sending off, 
sometimes even used as a word to, you know, send off someone, like a husband sends off his wife, horrible divorces his wife, it's using that word, afiemi, sending away. It's applied to things like debt, you can cancel a debt, right? And it's applied to forgiveness. So it's the idea of forgiveness there of letting go, and that's my second point. But there's another word translated forgive. It's a totally different word in the Greek. In the English, both might be used the word forgive. And it's the idea of grace. It's the word charizomai, which actually is related to the word charis, which means grace. And that's the word used in Colossians 3 when it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. All right? So there's two ideas there. There's the letting go idea of forgiveness and the showing grace. And I want to look at both in turns. That's points two and three. So firstly, forgiveness is a letting go. When God is calling us to be willing to forgive unconditionally, He's asking us to be willing to let offense against us go unconditionally. And it's because sin is like a debt. It's like a debt that you need to let go or cancel. You know the Lord's Prayer. It actually says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Right? But because it, doesn't, it sounds clunkier, most of us remember as forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's how I learned it, right? But it's actually debts because sin is like a debt. Now, how is that? Why, why, why is sin like a debt? Well, I'm not going to quote the Bible at this point. I'm going to quote the author of The Kite Runner. It's a good book, by the way. That's a really helpful... I mean, I don't agree with everything in this quote, but he, he gets to the point I'm trying to make. He says, There is only one sin, only one, and that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. Again, I don't agree with everything, but you get the point of where sin is like debt. Because when we sin against God, we rob God of honor. When I sin against you and you against me, I owe you for what I took from you. And look, let's be honest. Isn't this why we experience hurt? I mean, why is it that hurt that you commit against me and I against you? It plays in our heads. Why do we feel bitterness and anger? Deep inside is because we feel lost, right? Something has been lost. A sense of loss of what you took from me. Of the justice that, you, that, that, that demands payment because of what you did to me. Of the wrongs that must be righted. It feels like a debt of what you owe me when you sin against me. Right, there's nothing wrong with that. That is just the nature that sin creates this debt situation. And that's why sin is debt is a helpful way of understanding it. So Jesus is saying, being willing to forgive, and remember the willingness to forgive is unconditional. Whether they repent or not, I've got to be wholeheartedly willing to offer them this cancellation of debt, forgiveness. It means that being willing to forgive is to be willing to let that debt go. Let it go. Not demand payment. Not hold it against the person. Cancel the debt. Don't demand justice. Don't call on them to pay. Don't desire their suffering. If you were here last week, Jeff told that awesome story of him and uh, having the praying in the car and this lady who basically said, look, 
Don't worry about it. And she went around and fixed it herself. Right? It's a great story. Ask him about it later if you weren't here. I love the story, and I can't tell it as well as he did, so ask him about it. Um, but, you know, what happened with that incident, and he, he was very true to point it out, the lady who cancelled Jeff's debt had to then pay for it herself. It's not, I mean, Jeff went free. Jeff didn't have to pay anything, but she had to, Yeah. She had to fix her own car. She had to buff out the scratches. She had to buy the materials or put up with a car that's now dented. Right? Now, that is a big deal that someone... I mean, I wish people did that for me every time I banged into their car. But also, it's not a big deal because it's, at the end of the day, a car, right? Not a person. See, if you've been wounded deeply, it's not so easy. Because when Jesus is telling you, okay... Forgive that debt, cancel the debt. You know, and I know that for me to cancel that debt, I've now got to bear it. Yeah? Someone's got to pay. If the person who sinned against you doesn't pay, then you've got to, in your heart, then take on that payment yourself. And that costs, that hurts. Letting go of someone's sin against you means you've got to pay it for them. You've got to bear the hurt for them, and that's what makes it hard. So is that easy? No, in many cases, it almost seems impossible. And yet, that's what God is asking us to do today. No matter what someone has done against you, to be able to let that go. Absorb that hurt with his help, with the full knowledge that it's because he already paid for or your sins as well. So I'm going to get Jason to come up and play again. We're going to go into our second response. And again, bow your heads, and I want to do a bit of visualization for you. This is not going to be applicable to everyone. You may be okay, you know, maybe nothing that you can think of that someone has committed against you, whether in this church or another brother in Christ. But I think for a lot of us, there's going to be something. It's going to be someone who has hurt you. And I want you to visualize this. I want you to take everything that you can catalog that you're hanging on to that has hurt you, that this person has done, and imagine it on a list. On this list is all the things that they've done against you. It may just be one thing, but it's such a big thing. But it may be many. It may be the way that they tried to, and it's hurt more because of the way they haven't resolved it or they ignored you, or whatever it is. Just, just list them in your head. It's on that list. It's on that piece of paper. And imagine that piece of paper in your hands and you're clenching it. And you're clenching it tight because it hurts so much. And you can't let it go. Now I want you to visualize God, your Heavenly Father, and He comes. And He holds your hand in His big hand. And He says, child, I want you to let that go now. I want you to take that list and put it on my account. Because ultimately it is, remember? All sin is sin against God. And as he cradles your hand, your tight fist, he then begins to gently pry open all your fingers. So imagine that. Your fingers are being pried open. And in your hand, now open palm is that list. And he says, child, let me have it. Let me take that. Let, me, let that be my burden. Put that on my account. I know it hurt you, but ultimately it was against me. 
to put it on my account and know that I have already forgiven them just as I've forgiven you and you can let it go. And he takes that list. He, along with all your sins and all my sins, casts it to the bottom of the sea. I want you to imagine letting it go and putting it there. So that's what he's asking us to do. It's not easy. 25,000 is not nothing. But it just cannot compare with 13 million. And he's saying, put it on my account. For my sake. Because you are my children and you are brothers and sisters in my family. For my sake, forgive. Cancel. Let it go. Will you be willing to do that? Now, maybe today you'll be like, I want to, but I just can't. It's been so long. And yeah, if at the end of today, all you're willing to say is, I am willing, but God, I need your help to overcome my unwillingness. That's, that's a good step. That's a good step. Right. Let me go to my last point. Remember, one, point of, uh, one, one word for forgiveness is letting go. The other word is to show grace. The whole idea of grace is, of course, undeserved kindness, undeserved favor. When people wrong us, we often very quick to think about justice. What do they deserve? They don't deserve for me to forgive them because they haven't even apologized. They haven't even shown remorse. They don't deserve that. Well, the whole idea of grace, and grace is one of the words to translate forgiveness, is actually not about deserve. The, the deserve category just does not apply when it comes to God's economy. And the reason why we've got to get that in our head is because that's how God treats us. So I'm, I'm, I don't have time to go through everything. I'm just going to show you a list of, this is just off the top of my head, the ways that God's grace applies to us, and I'll let you join the dots, okay? I'll let you work out how this might apply to our forgiveness of each other. But this is just the way that God has treated us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will agree and love that this is true. Firstly, God's grace means that he is the offended one, but notice he takes the initiative to reconcile. God's grace means that he repays, in inverted commas, our offense by blessing and praying for the offender. Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. Thirdly, God doesn't demand perfect sorrow or a perfect apology before forgiving. Isn't that good for us? Imagine that. God says, sorry, I'm not going to forgive you just yet. You haven't said the perfect apology. God doesn't require us to identify and name every sin before forgiving us. Thank God for that. God does not keep a record of wrongs and he covers over a multitude of sins. God continues to forgive repeat offenses. He never gets sick of us coming to him with the same sins and saying, oh gosh, I did that again, God, I'm sorry. And how about this one? God can be justly angry at sin, okay? Sin is true offense. He can be justly angry at sin, but yet at the same time have tender love and compassion for the sinner. All right, I'll let you figure out how this may apply to our interpersonal forgiveness. For some of you, this would be like, okay, this isn't too hard. I want to say to you, if you don't think this is hard, you just wait. You haven't been hurt enough. And it's going to happen. Remember, this is something we should expect. 
in a community of broken people. You're going to hurt me and you're going to hurt me a lot. I'm going to hurt you and I'm going to hurt you a lot. Not that I'm deliberately going to do that. You're not deliberately doing it to me. It's just the nature of this community, this precious community. Right? So expect it. Now, some of you have experienced all that. And of course, it seems hard. It seems maybe impossible. God is asking the impossible. And he asked the impossible because he has already achieved the impossible. What else is impossible? It's impossible that he should take our debt and cast it to the bottom of the sea. It's impossible that he should send his only son to be crucified and go to hell in our place. But he did that already. And he gives us the spirit of Jesus so that the impossible can become possible. I'm just going to end and I'm going to get Jason to play in the background this last bit. It's a bit of a long bit, so strap yourselves in. I'm going to read from a, a really influential book by a lady called Corrie Ten Boom. She survived a Nazi death camp, a Christian. She survived uh, a Nazi death camp. She had to go to the Nazi death camp because her and her family hid Jews and protected them from the Nazis. Anyway, let me just read what she wrote and Jason will play in the background. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. She's a Dutch. Right, she's from Holland. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they got their stuff. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him walking forward against all the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, but the next moment, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. 
But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven. I stood there and I couldn't. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever have to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior. I can only draw from them afresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks, I seethed inside. But at last, I asked God again to work His miracle in me. And again, it happened. First, the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father. Then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, hashing over the whole affair again? My friends, I thought, people I loved. It had been strangers. I wouldn't have minded so. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me do it. But the next night I woke up again. Father, I cried out in alarm. Help me. God's help came in the form of a kindly pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Up in that church tower, he said, pointing out the window, is a bell. 
which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the bell ringer lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong, then slower and slower until there's a final dong and then it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversation, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out from them. They came less and less often and at last stopped altogether. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. I'm going to get the band up. We're going to sing a final song. It may be that today you need to do what Corrie ten Boom did at first very unwillingly, and that's just to decide, make a hold hard decision with the mind, which is actually part of the heart, but your willingness, I will, I will, I will. I will at least begin to pray about it. I will at least take the first step. I will at least ask God to help me. I will at least make the first move. Whatever it is, take that first step. And God asks us to do it because, remember, community is precious to him. These are your brothers and sisters. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done billions of times more, which has taken all of our offenses and cast them into the bottom of the sea. So with his help, even we can do the impossible. Let's, let's sing.